This week on the Totally Biased Media Podcast, we talk the Suicide Squad, give our thoughts on the Green Knight and Death Store, Jackson reveals the steamy details of The Rock's bathing schedule, and more. Stay tuned for some kind of episode of the TBM. I'm Jackson Walkup, and every member of this podcast is chosen for his or her own complete, unique set of abilities. I'm Jason Simmons, and in my hands, anything is a deadly weapon. I'm Jordan Walkup, and in my hands, anything is a deadly weapon. Ladies and gentlemen, we are, of course, talking about THE Suicide Squad. Not just any Suicide Squad. THE Suicide Squad. Now, if you're wondering, is this a sequel? Is this a reboot? Is this something new entirely? Maybe. (laughs) We don't really know, even after watching this movie. I'm pretty sure it's a sequel, technically. I don't think it technically undoes anything from Ayer's Suicide Squad from 2016. But I could be wrong on that. I think the only thing that the first movie matters, even in the slightest, is that Harley, Captain Boomerang, and... Uh, Rick Flag know each other. We got more Suicide Squad, and they're back to their old tricks. <laughs> so, if you're unfamiliar, Suicide Squad is a movie directed by James Gunn, best known for Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and Scooby-Doo Monsters Unleashed. You know, the heavy hitters in the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Scooby-Doo movie franchises. <laughs> And this this movie's cast is uh, about a hundred names long, and they are all A-list celebrities. So it's very hard to talk about in a way that is congruent to the movie at all. So let's start with this. We got Margot Robbie, Idris Elba, John Cena, Joel Kinnaman. That's all you need to know. The rest of them, they got... Uh, uh, They're there too. <laughs> the the others <laughs> there's a lot of people in this movie but only a few of them are important <laughs> so jackson what is the suicide squad and how did we get here the suicide squad is a team of supervillains and bad people from the uh, uh what's it called bell rev prison in the dc universe Except they who, they do mispronounce it in the movie multiple times and call it Bell Reeve. Interesting. And it bothered me every time they said it because it's definitely always been Bell Rev. I'll be honest, I didn't even notice it. <laughs> but their technical name is Task Force X, and their whole thing is you know they are chosen from this prison for their uh, completely unique set of abilities to form a team to complete missions to get time taken off their sentences and. In this case, the island of Corto Maltese um, is currently under a military coup where the ex-president was killed by the general of the military. So Task Force X is sent here 
to take them down and restore the country back to its uh, leaders. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. (laughs) Um, No, they're not sent there in the slightest. They don't care about the country being taken over by the new leaders. They're sent there to destroy a top-secret Corto-Maltesian scientific outpost. That's their only goal, is to destroy that outpost. But yeah, we got the Suicide Squad, technically called Task Force X, who are all prisoners who are sent on super dangerous missions in exchange for getting out of prison earlier. It's been done before in the movie Just Suicide Squad, and we're doing it again here in The Suicide Squad. But Jason, why don't you kick us off on the review? How does this compare to 2016 Suicide Squad? <laughs> well, if you recall 2016 Suicide Squad, it's a very similar plot, but instead of Idris Elba, they have uh, Will Smith. Exactly the same otherwise, one for one. <laughs> uh, except for some reason, when they replaced Will Smith with Idris Elba, this movie's good. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I solely blame Will Smith for the 2016 one uh, having such poor reception. Um, yeah, it's it's weird because like a lot of this movie is it's all been said and done before, but also it's just a lot better than any time it's been said or done before. So like, James Gunn honestly is kind of the king of uh, ensemble cast movies right now. Yeah, at least when it comes to A-list movies, between Guardians of the Galaxy and this, I mean, those are some of the. I I would say this is probably one of my favorite comic book movies. Period. Like I really liked this movie. <laughs> yeah, it was. Man, it was so good. <laughs> and what's really impressive is you know, kind of to go to the similarities with Guardians of the Galaxy, it's a, it's more or less a cast of unknown characters because most of the people that are in the Suicide Squad from 2016 are not really the focus of this movie. It focuses on an entirely new group of people. Uh, that's, you know, Idris Elba's... Bloodsport. Bloodsport. <laughs> uh, Ratcatcher, played by... Sorry. Two. Ratcatcher 2, played by Daniela Melchior. John Cena's Peacemaker. Sylvester Stallone's King Shark. And... Um, and lastly, David Desmalkian's Polka Dot Man. Well, they're going on their whole big adventure. So you're not really dealing with a group of people you're already familiar with from the previous movie. You're dealing with an entirely new group. It puts more on Bloodsport than anybody else here. Yeah, much like uh, Will Smith's Deadshot was the main character in 2016 Suicide Squad, Bloodsport's definitely the main, at least emotional anchor for this movie. Um... And I, I, I think that James Gunn does a really good job kind of introducing all the new characters and kind of like setting a foundation for why they are the way they are, <laughs> as well as kind of showing off their abilities. And I think he does it in a way that's much quicker and more succinct. Definitely quicker and more succinct than 2016 Suicide Squad, where they're still trying to introduce characters and show off their abilities when you're like an hour and a half into the movie. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, this movie's smart because it just gives you, like, a really small bite of, like, 
This is the character. This is their motivation. This is what they do. And then kind of throws them into the action for you to actually learn a little bit more about them. It doesn't try and really hark on their backstories as much as just giving you the broad overview and then being like, and let's see them in action. So <laughs> I think that was pretty smart. And I think that that really gives the movie a lot of momentum pretty much right from the beginning. Yeah, definitely. Idris Elba gets a little bit of backstory. The only character that they really kind of flesh out the backstory of is Ratcatcher 2, where they kind of establish, like, her father, who was the original Ratcatcher, was just some poor guy in Paris, I think. (laughs) I'm not sure where they were from. I didn't pay enough attention during the movie. (laughs) Um... But Taika Waititi plays the original rat catcher, and his whole thing is just, you know, rats may be small, but they can help keep us alive. And he's just a big family man who really likes rats. (laughs) Yeah. So, definitely, the characters are sort of the biggest focus of this movie pretty much through and through. Jackson, were there any, like, surprise standout characters for you? king shark (laughs) like he was mostly just comic relief same with a lot of the characters actually uh even polka dot man were like characters you would not expect to be more than just like kind of stupid characters that are just there they weirdly make them emotional characters and it's weird how they do that (laughs) how do you make king shark emotional did we watch different movies and I mean, it wasn't like throughout the entire movie or something. Like it was like select parts, but it was, it was still interesting. <laughs> I think that, for me, what really sort of sold me on this movie right from the get go was that they immediately established this huge team of characters, which are all like, you know, funny and interesting and do cool things. And then 10 minutes in, it's like, oh, yeah, but this movie isn't about these guys. It's about these other guys. And, like, that pretty much set the vibe right from the, right from the start. Because even, like, I would not have been surprised in the slightest if any given character from the original roster that's introduced ended up being, like, the focus. But it's none of them. It's these new guys, and we're going to, you know, really sell you on what they do and why they're better. <laughs> and, I mean, it's hard not to be, like, totally impressed, you know, like, overshadowingly impressed with Idris Elba's performance in this. But I, I think Polka Dot <laughs> Man was really the one that was like, like, yeah, I like this guy. This is something. Polka Dot <laughs> Man's definitely, I would say he's my favorite of the cast. I thought that David Desmalkian's performance was pretty good. And then just the writing for him, where he's horribly depressed about his abilities. (laughs) (laughs) I I just think it was a really fun character. I don't know exactly how his powers work in the comics, but in this, the way that they work is he has, like, an interdimensional virus that causes him to, like, grow the polka dots on his skin and in his body. Yeah, he has no control over when the polka dots start appearing on him. Yeah. And if he doesn't use them often enough, then they'll just build up and he'll explode. Yep. And they're basically like, I don't even know how to describe what they physically do. They just like 
burn through anything they touch and he can like project them at things it's it's wild the rest of the team have pretty boring abilities other than rat catcher rat catcher two <laughs> has the ability to control rats yeah. with some kind of magic wand more or less i say magic wand it is it's some kind of experimental control device that her father the original rat catcher made uh and then the rest of the team they just kind of shoot things king shark is part shark so he's naturally very strong and resilient uh but he doesn't have like yeah i yeah no no crazy he's just powers. real he's strong not shooting and anything or flying through the, the only person and... in the whole team that i would say yeah is like well sorry king shark and polka dot man are the only two that i would say are like actual super powered beings superhuman if you will uh, everyone else is just really good with guns or weaponry. <laughs> or rats. In general. Now, I think that, like, one thing I was we- I was weary about going into this movie that I, I thought was handled fairly well is I am not a fan of gore in movies. <laughs> and I knew going into this there was going to be a lot of it. Um, I think it actually does a pretty good job of walking a fine line of not being so realistic that it's like hyper unsettling, but also being realistic enough that it's not totally unbelievable. <laughs> um, and I think that's really just attributed to the special effects in this movie are not the norm for superhero movies. They're not shooting for this hyper realism you see in a lot of, marvel stuff and the bigger name dc stuff like this movie has its very own style in the cinematography and the special effects even in like the ways the characters sort of react doesn't feel very traditional marvel or dc ish and i think that that sort of i think that that sort of carried it a lot through some of the more predictable i guess moments in the movie because even though I think the movie was good across the board, there were still some very cliche superhero-y scenes in there <laughs> that you kind of knew what was going to happen before yeah, it ever actually Yeah, the whole did. ending is definitely very cliche of the team teams up to fight a giant monster. Yeah. It's very similar to the ending of the first one. <laughs> yeah, and the way they do it is very much just accepting, like, what if we were a team instead? And then everything just kind of falls into place. <laughs> so... Yeah. Speaking of things being expected, the only really like not even that much of a gripe that I have with this movie is that James Gunn said that do not expect your favorite character to live through this or anything. But almost every character I expected to die died and almost every character I expected to live lived. I don't know. I wouldn't go quite that far. I mean, there were a handful that like was pretty obvious they were going to survive just for sequel stuff. There was only one death that I felt was like unexpected. All the others, I I feel like I knew it was going to happen. Maybe there was. I'll make that two. There were two that I was not expecting to happen. <laughs> but besides that, that's yeah. one of the biggest differences between what the 2016 Suicide Squad movie was and what this one was setting out to be. I think was that 
the 2016 movie had to fit in these very specific parameters in theme and how it fit in the world and the narrative set up for future content, where this movie, they could kind of do their own thing. And I think the fact that James Gunn sprung for less common characters, characters that don't have a ton of overarching impact on groups like the Justice League, (laughs) and just the fact that everything happening in it was pretty self-contained, I think he could be a little more off the rails with sort of the over-the-top <laughs> death scenes and the just hyper-violence that happens throughout <laughs> this movie. I mean, I think that was a big part of the reason that he wanted to do Suicide Squad, right? Oh yeah, I'm sure. Because you've got a lot of characters that, one, people don't know about, and two, people don't care about. <laughs> So you can do almost anything you want with any of these characters because there's not kind of this overarching narrative that you're trying to push at the same time. This feels different. Uh, it, it definitely, I think it's mostly just tonally different. Right. This movie isn't, there are some dark scenes in this movie, but it's not like it's an overall dark universe that they're trying to portray. And I feel like with... The Zack Snyder-led uh, DC Universe. It was mostly aiming for kind of this dark and gritty thing, like the Batman comics of the 90s. Uh, and this just doesn't feel like it... It's not really congruent with that universe, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think that this was... I could almost see this more as like a palate cleanse than like a straight up continuation or the opposite and just being like a a complete bookend on that universe. I think this is just, this is just going in and saying, what if we don't worry about overarching movie continuity and we just make something fun in this movie? And I think that he did that incredibly well. Now it's not to say it's, it's perfect by any means, but I think it's definitely a, a, big big step in the right direction for potential other dc properties like i think realistically not even just dc i think superhero media in general could take sort of a page out of james gunn's book about how you make a self-contained story good in a world where every single movie has to set up 18 sequels i think that dc should just go back to before they like i don't think they should try to copy the mcu Like, I think that they should just have their characters. And, you know, you can have crossover between those characters. But I don't think that every movie needs to be building up towards a Thanos. And I I think that's kind of a big weakness that they ran into with Batman versus Superman. And also, they just picked the wrong characters. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, the MCU built up for, like, over a decade before they were fighting Thanos. And then... With the DC universe, they were just like, it's the first, or the second movie, the second movie with Superman in it. They're going to fight Doomsday. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's no buildup. All I know about Superman is that he he killed Zod at that point. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, there's not enough interesting information about the character. And I think the DC universe also is the problem of... It doesn't flesh out characters properly, or it didn't with previous movies. Like, I still don't feel like we know very much about Ben Affleck's Batman, or even Henry Cavill's Superman. 
And we had two movies <laughs> with each of those characters at the very minimum. Yeah. Whereas I... Suicide Squad builds up more character for a lot of these villains while also kind of juggling 12 other characters. <laughs> I think that that sort of comes from a self-awareness that not all these characters are created equally. Like, you just straight up do not need to give as much background time to a character like Polka Dot Man as you do Bloodsport or Ratcatcher. Like, you just you don't need it. Like, you need to know that one principle and you understand all you need to understand about the character. I think that for the extended universe, they tried to do that with characters that needed a lot more. Like Superman, all he wanted to do was be like, well, he stands for justice and he helps people, but not actually show us any of his like internal struggles other than that one time where he hesitated to kill Zod for 30 seconds. And like, we need more of that. We need more for, more from Superman than that, but we don't necessarily need that from everyone here. Because I think that the most interesting thing you can do with Superman is show him losing, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Superman needs to come up against something that he can't solve with his superpower of being able to do anything whenever he wants. And I know that that's hard to write, and it's definitely probably harder to get across in a movie than a comic book. But that's what we need to see with Superman if you want to make a good Superman movie. Superman struggling. And Man of Steel... Superman, I, I thought Man of Steel was alright because Superman struggled, right? Because he didn't, these were other Kryptonians who had the same powers as him. So he was kind of thrown up against equally powered enemies. And then in Batman versus Superman, it's like, Superman shouldn't have these problems. <laughs> yeah. and that's... It's like, why does Superman care what politicians think about him? <laughs> why does Superman care what... Why does he care about Lex Luthor before Lex Luthor does anything evil? <laughs> I think power imbalance also hurts pretty much all properties in like all superhero media. And I think that that's actually one of my complaints about this movie as well. Um, for example, Batman versus Superman, if they were on normal terms and it was just like, Batman and Superman, you two need to fight now. Before Batman could even think about it, he would have lost. Because Superman is an absolute monster. And, like, this movie... <laughs> there are a few characters that have powers that are so far beyond what they do in this movie. And then other characters are just like, I am pretty good with guns. <laughs> and then they just have equal points on the team. And I think that this movie definitely benefits from the fact that the main characters are mostly normal people. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the reason that they are having this struggle is because they don't have super speed or super strength. And then King Shark's issue is that he's incredibly stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll get into... I, I, I truly only have one tremendous... They're not tremendous, but one significant complaint against this movie. But it's pretty contingent on a spoiler, so we'll save that till the very end of the review part. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the movie was directed well. There's a lot of really good shots in it. Uh, specifically the scene where like Harley Quinn is uh, freeing herself mm. after she's been kidnapped. And she's like, shooting and there are flowers coming up all over the place. 
I thought that that scene was really cool. Yeah, that scene was that scene was pretty cool. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. I feel like I remember there also being a scene like that in Birds of Prey, but I don't remember much of Birds of Prey at all. <laughs> that actually, yeah, that's a, that's a good segue. Uh, that was that was one thing I wanted to talk about was Birds of Prey was fine. Like I didn't dislike it or anything, but it just wasn't anything like truly special. And by the end of it, I was just kind of like. I was kind of just bored with Harley Quinn as a character. Like, all DC property was sort of overly saturated with her as a character. And I was kind of just burnt out on it. Even though I think that Margot Robbie portrays her incredibly well. It's just, it's a character that's been done to death. And Birds of Prey sort of cemented that. But then, like, in this movie, I actually think they did some really cool stuff with Harley. Because she had her own thing going on for most of the movie that was sort of detached from this new team of, like, Suicide Squad members. And, like, it was played off really well, both in terms of, like, a progression for the character and setting up really cool scenes for her to just be Harley Quinn. <laughs> and I think that that was, that was much needed for that character and for Margot Robbie portraying that character. Also, interesting side note, there's a scene where she's being like, she has like her arms bound above her head, um, and she frees herself by getting the key and unlocking it with her feet. Uh, Margot Robbie actually did that. Hmm. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> okay, so we've sort of laid the groundwork for Suicide Squad, but this is a hard movie to talk about without getting into the whole third act, which is sort of spoiler heavy. So... If you have not seen this movie yet, now might be the jumping off point. Let's talk about the ending of, of Suicide Squad. So, I think there are a lot of movies these days where trailers do them a disservice. Because with this one in particular, the whole Starro thing I think was really cool. And if I didn't know that was coming at all... That would have been a really cool, like, change in momentum for the movie. But because I saw trailers and stuff, which was just like, hey, what if in this movie they're actually fighting a giant alien at the end? It kind of took away a lot of the, the, the momentum behind that. This is exactly why I say, and I've said it ever since that new Terminator movie came out, where they revealed that John Connor was a Terminator or whatever. Yeah. You gotta stop watching trailers. Yeah. They just... The trailers, they're put together not by the director. They're put together by just the producers who want to show you something interesting and get people to fill seats. And if it's a movie you're already thinking about going to see, then the trailer's not gonna do anything good for you. (laughs) But I also think it's like, it's not the obligation of all consumers just to ignore them when that's like the main form of marketing. I just think they really got to tone this stuff back. Like, there was enough to show off with this movie with just this huge cast of characters with all sorts of crazy powers. Like, they did not need to show who this big twist true villain in the end was to get people to come see this movie. But... The big twist true villain being Viola Davis's Amanda Waller? (laughs) Yeah. Amanda Waller sucks. And, like, that's... (laughs) And not in an interesting way. It's just like, picture this. Out there somewhere in the U.S. government, 
there's an elected official who is actually a bad person. <laughs> is she an elected official? I, I have I, no I idea. That. Yeah, I don't know. But um, like, I actually, if there's one character that I think was done better in the 2016 Suicide Squad, it would be Amanda Waller. Yeah. Um, because there's a scene in Amanda, there's a scene with Amanda Waller in 2016 Suicide Squad where she basically just kills everyone in the room with her. <laughs> Because she needs to be rescued, and we can't rescue all, all these people. <laughs> yeah, this depiction of her was just a little too... I, I don't know. Like, they were trying too hard. Yeah. Um, but it was more the writing. It wasn't her depiction of the character at all. I think she's one of the best actresses of of the day. So, like, I don't think it's Viola Davis... I don't think it had anything to do with her. I think it is just the writing for the character wasn't quite up to par. Um, if we're talking spoilers, though, I think it's more important to talk about the wild first act. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Where this movie in, gets throughout, going. Like, a, lot of the, a lot of the production stuff that I saw, because I didn't watch trailers or anything, but I did see like uh, promotional images and stuff like that. And most of that showed the first team that the, the movie introduces you to, which is made up of, you know, Captain Boomerang, Rick Flag, TDK, Javelin, Mongol, Weasel, Blackguard, and Harley Quinn. <laughs> they call him Blackguard in the movie, and I still think they should have called him Blackguard. But that's just me, because um, I think pirates say it cooler. <laughs> But yeah, but like, you're you're led to believe that the movie's going to follow these characters. Oh, and and also Savant, played by Michael Rooker. <laughs> yeah, and then it introduces the, these characters. It kind of shows like a little bit of what everyone can do, and then they land on a beach, and immediately Weasel drowns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they they swim up to the beach afterwards, and almost everyone in that group gets immediately killed by the Corto Maltesian military. <laughs> And not just killed, like totally eviscerated, yeah. like I do torn have to, say, to pieces. We do get to see Captain Boomerang throw a boomerang, which yeah. uh, means he's in this movie for maybe three minutes, and <laughs> yeah. he throws one fifth as many boomerangs as he did in the entire 2016 movie. <laughs> yeah, it sets up a lot of characters that it's like they seem really cool and have cool powers and cool styles, and then you watch them just get totally destroyed in a fight. And, like, again, I'm, I'm normally one with a weak stomach, but, like, I, re- I, I got about 10 minutes into the movie, and I'm just like, you know, I actually enjoyed that. I think I'm going to be okay the rest of the time, because it is, it is visceral. Like, limbs are being destroyed, a couple heads get chopped in half, like... Nathan Fillion's there. Yeah, Nathan <laughs> Fillion's there. Yeah, it's it's wild. Like these, the scene with Captain Boomerang in that is really cool, though, where he throws his boomerang and cuts like he cuts the top of one guy's head off and another guy's entire head off with like a laser boomerang or something. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it was. It looked like it was a boomerang where one of the edges had like a laser on it. Yeah, it was pretty wild stuff. Like I think that it's definitely one of like the craziest starts to a superhero movie I've ever seen. And I, I think that's kind of where the movie starts by being like, all right, well, this movie's not going to be what you expected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because immediately after everyone else gets killed, we switch over to what I'm going to call the A-team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because these guys are, one, 
much better at working as a team, even though they barely know each other, and two, much more skilled. Yeah, much more competent in general. <laughs> um, still kind of weird that Rick Flag and Harley were on the getting sent to their death team, but you know. <laughs> yeah, that was... I don't think it was supposed to be a getting sent to their death team. I think they were supposed to be a distraction. Like, they were supposed to go into the city and cause havoc. Hmm. But Blaggard uh, kind of sells them out. So as soon as they arrive, the military's just like, we're already here. Yeah. So they're, they, they're facing like hundreds of people when they're only expecting to be facing like a dozen, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and the like, only two I... that survived that are Rick Flagg and Harley Quinn, right? Yes. Okay, okay. I was... Oh, and, and um, well. But I think it gets off to an incredibly good start. And then it actually starts to kind of slow itself down so you can learn a little bit about the characters, which I think was it was a really good change of pace instead of it starting slow and, and gaining momentum 100% the rest of the way. Um, I do think the third act wasn't quite as good as the first two. It It sort of went a little too generic superhero movie-ish by the end. But I think like it's definitely one of the best starts to a superhero movie se- like I've seen in a very long time. I thought the second act was the strongest. Like the first act was interesting, kind of subverted expectations. And I, I would say the first act of this movie is very short. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like basically, your first act is until it switches over to the A team and like while they're going through the forest. But then I, I would say the second act really starts when they're saving Rick Flag. <laughs> quote unquote saving Rick yeah <laughs> that i i thought that was a uh pretty interesting scene i really liked the rivalry between uh blood sport and peacemaker that they showed throughout that scene yeah yeah i thought that entire part was pretty good because like blood sport and uh peacemaker are, like showing off to each other seeing who can like get the cleanest kills or whatever throughout this entire camp and then they get to the end of it and find Rick Flagg, who's just sitting with the leader of this camp drinking tea. And then, you know, you just find out uh, that that they was the... Killed. They just killed, like, the rebel group against the government. <laughs> yep. I was a little let down. From the promotional images of Rick Flagg, I really thought he was going to be wearing a big Chungus shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I didn't get a good look. He's wearing a, a shirt with a rabbit holding a sign or something like that. Hmm. It was a very weird graphic tee. I couldn't tell what it yeah. said. In the promotional images, I really thought it was Big Chungus holding a sign. And I was like, this is stupid, but like, <laughs> fine. It's just, I, yeah. I looked it up. It's just, I can't really tell exactly, like, what this rat is supposed to be from or anything. It's just like a rat in, like, a cape with a sign. I can't even find a good picture that shows me what the sign says. <laughs> yeah. It says, Big Chungus goes here. <laughs> Yeah, um, but I, I think like it it does just about everything it wants to do well. I, I don't think that what this movie does is that like ambitious necessarily, or that different. It, it's sort of in like it it does a lot of things that we've started to see more of with shows like Invincible and like the the boys where it's just kind of like turning the superhero relationships on their head. 
Um, but see, it is you are comparing it to television shows, which I think is somewhat interesting. Yeah, because it it's is not more... something we're seeing in film right now very right. much. Right, but that is true. That is true. And TV series have the advantage when they're trying to explore these ideas of they have you know you know a movie's going to be max like two hours, right? Unless you're crazy, <laughs> and then you want to make like a four hour movie. <laughs> couldn't imagine uh but so so tv series they have you know eight hours or however long to kind of set up the universe and establish these characters and then kind of subvert expectations i think what's kind of impressive about this movie is that it manages to do a lot of that inside of a movie's time length and it doesn't feel rushed it might not be doing it as well as those others but it's doing something pretty ambitious with a much smaller amount of time to get it done. And I, I think it succeeds in a lot of ways, at the very least. All of James Gunn's movies kind of end with a big monster fight at the end, more or less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that being said, I I mentioned before, I only really had one gripe with this movie, and it, it really is just the fight with Starro is kind of, I don't know, it's just kind of bland. And I... I really don't like it in movies where the way that they defeat a big villain is just, oh, well, we're actually a lot more powerful than we previously appeared. Like, Ratcatcher is just like, I know how we can defeat this giant monster. I'm just going to do my normal power, but more, and it works. And like... (laughs) I didn't, I don't know, I really didn't care for that. It set up like an interesting flashback, like emotional scene that I thought was good, but just her being like, more rats solving all their problems was just sort of, it was just weird. I I just didn't care for it. Yeah, I couldn't really make up my mind about that scene. Um, It kind of seemed, it feels like they're building to a scene where everyone uses their abilities and they all, you know, like everybody attacking at once is what does it. But really it's like, there's King Shark and Harley Quinn, and on some level Bloodsport, who do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> now they're attacking the enemy, but they are doing nothing. Hey, Bloodsport makes a giant gun that shoots missiles that literally do not hurt Starro at all. <laughs> well, the other, the other two are also doing things that are not affecting him. So that's kind of what I'm saying here. Yeah. But then, like, Polka Dot Man is actually getting stuff done. And then it's just like, well, don't know how we're going to end this. It's obvious that three people here aren't going to be able to do anything. So it's like, Ratcatcher summons a billion rats and <laughs> saves the day. <laughs> I also don't... Ratcatcher 2. I think that there was meant to be some symbolism there of, like... The masses. Well, the are rats more are the powerful. lowest of the people in the city, right? I guess, but they're it really, like the lowest it, of the low, but they actually control the city. I thought it was kind of a metaphor for them being supervillains. But it also didn't it's like, like they're the underdogs. It did. It didn't completely track in my mind because I thought I kind of saw it as like a metaphor for like the the common folk rising up and taking down this regime that was like controlling them. But also, like, the people were kind of the bad guys at that point. Kastar had already taken them over. And, like, 
I don't know. It was it was weird. It seemed like the scene was just kind of meant to be more than it was. And in the end, it was just a superhero being like, I'm going to use all my power. I mean, like, it, it doesn't hurt the movie that bad. It's fine. It's just... It was a couple minutes where it was just kind of a bummer. And knowing the solution to this, like, world-ending problem was something that, like that, kind of kind of bummed me out a bit. Yeah, it, it was kind of weird that there wasn't... I think it's just what we expect to see at this point, is normally in a movie you'd have some kind of MacGuffin, like something they need to get in the third act, but the third act here was... The MacGuffin was Starro himself. So once they got Starro, you can't just have another big item that they have to go get. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I, there should have been like some way where they had to find something to power up her wand or something. Yeah. that's. I was actually talking to Jackson about that yesterday because like a big part of the hero's journey, which basically all superhero movies follow to some degree, is that the hero actually has to like get some kind of power or find an important item or even just learn something important and that's how they're powerful enough to beat the bad guy and this movie follows the hero's journey pretty thoroughly and then just skips over that step (laughs) (laughs) well it doesn't i think what it's supposed to be is that bloodsport nearly sacrifices himself to save her the, pro- the problem is it's Bloodsport's emotional journey throughout the film, but then somebody else, somebody else is the one that actually solves the problem. But that being said, that's just one part of this movie that I was kind of, I didn't love. Like, overall, I think it's like a pretty, pretty solid movie with some really cool scenes and some really cool characters. Um, I wish they would have kind of explored the relationship between Starro and the Thinker a little bit more. Yeah, because they they establish in the movie that like the thinker is straight up torturing Starro, like because they they establish that I think Starro can feel the pain of anybody that's under Starro's control, and then vice versa, and yeah. like when they show the thinker's lab where he's experimenting on people that have been infected by Starro, like one guy's like cut in half, there's one guy that's like the thinker has some kind of arm that's holding the Starro mind control starfish thing, like just too far from someone's face to control it. But then Starro just kills the thinker. Like, which like good for him. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I I mean, I'm on Starro's side here. (laughs) Yeah. It's, and then Starro's last words are pretty emotional too, where he's just like, I was content floating in the space, staring at the stars or whatever. Yeah. It, it is an interesting concept about this idea of like, this was a self-inflicted problem. Like, the U.S. government found Starro out in space, brought him back, and turned it into a whole thing. <laughs> like a, a power grab, or a way of controlling, you know, other countries and things. Um, yep, spoilers, people. The U.S. government's the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Starro's the bad guy, but... Well, yeah. There are more. There are multiple bad guys. <laughs> Pretty sure the Joker's the bad guy. He's not in this movie, but he's 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 damaged. <laughs> I know because he has a tattoo that tells me. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix's Joker should have just like been there, just kind of chilling. Oh, like in Space Jam. <laughs> I just did a. I just accidentally did a, and then Deadpool walks in moment. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a lot of suicide. That's a lot of the Suicide Squad talk. So, Jackson, why don't you give us your recap of the Suicide Squad? Wait, not recap. Review, review. of the Suicide Squad. You know, I've noticed... The. I've noticed there's a weird line where the more I like something, the less I know how... Like, the less I know what to say about it until a certain point where I know what to say too much about it. This is right at that point, like, where I don't know what all to say about it, other than just, like, it's just such a good movie. Like, there's good acting, there is very good directing and writing, the action sequences are really good, some of my favorites that I've seen in superhero movies. And, like, uh, one of the big things I actually want to mention, I feel like a problem I have with a lot of superhero movies is pacing, where things either happen too fast or too slow. In this movie, it just feels like everything is going right at the right speed. Except maybe the final battle against Starro, which might be a little too fast. But other than that, like, I don't really have, like, any complaints about this movie at all besides James Gunn saying your favorite character will probably not live through this. And then only, like, two characters that I wasn't expecting to die died. <laughs> Well, were those characters that lived your favorites? Uh, yeah. I mean, you got King Shark and Bloodsport and Harley Quinn. I'd say those were my top three. Um, Rick Flag, he was pretty cool. Um, was surprised he died. The o- the other only one that I was surprised died was Boomerang, uh, Captain Boomerang. But like, I still didn't really care that much. <laughs> So just like anyways, I don't like personally, I don't even think that's enough of a reason like drop it down in a score or anything. So I'm going to give this a 10 out of 10. Wow. (laughs) Well, folks, what do you know? We managed to review a good movie for once. (laughs) I know we did it on accident. And uh, we've reviewed good video games before, but I think this is the first good movie. Wait, you're forgetting we reviewed uh, Space Jam 1? (laughs) Yeah. So anyways, this is the first good movie we've reviewed, and I'm, I'm proud to say that I think I, I liked it. Honestly, I'm just a big fan of James Gunn's like directorial style, and the way that he manages to handle ensemble casts. Like I said earlier, the man is the master of the ensemble cast. He's so good at giving like a good amount of focus to all the characters, while still kind of managing to have you know a main central character that you can kind of follow the emotional journey of that in this case being Idris Elba's blood sport. It's a lot of beautiful scenes. <laughs> and the, the jokes in this movie, I think landed a lot better than the jokes in suicide squad 2016, <laughs> where it just kind of felt like the characters were all there to make jokes and nothing else. Whereas this movie, it seems more like everyone's goal is to get their mission done and they make jokes along the way, which is the proper way to handle things. <laughs> I don't know if I would give it a 10 out of 10. I've yet to see a movie that I would really think I would give a 10 out of a 10 to. I I think this, it's pretty good. It's pretty close to a 10 out of 10. I think I'm going to give it a a 9. Yeah, 9 feels good. It's a good movie, (laughs) y'all. No, I mean, I I liked it, like, more than I thought I would. I don't think that I was quite as, like, blown away with it as, as you guys were. But I think it was still, like, it was something special, and it did some very cool things. Um, Jackson mentioned earlier, it's sort of, it's 
sometimes you'll get these things where you don't necessarily have any complaints about them, so they're like kind of hard to talk about. But my experience with this movie was more like I don't really have any I don't have a ton of complaints to get into, but I also don't really have anything that I just like loved about it to get into. So it's sort of like in the middle there. I mean, obviously on the higher end. I wouldn't say this is like a middle of the pack movie, but like it was just like everything everything in it is good and it's all done well. It's just there weren't as many things that just totally blew me away as a lot of other people seem to have felt with this movie. <laughs> like that being said, still good direction for superhero movies. James Gunn is incredible at what he does and I understand why he is such a sought after person in the industry right now. Um, and I think it's one of the best casts that DC has had in any of their properties so far. I, I think I would give it an eight out of 10 that, that feels right. My gut says eight out of 10. <laughs> wow. So there you have it. The final score is nine. The one I gave it. That's because my review is the best. <laughs> My review is the most important. <laughs> My review is the most important because I always have the middle review. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we have so much other stuff we got to get into. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come right back with not one, but two TB minis. <laughs> Okay, so we took a little bit more time off than normal between episodes. We try and take a week off every like roughly 10 episodes. So I took that time to catch up on some games that I have not been able to necessarily give the time that I think they merited. One of those was a little game called Death's Door. Now, if you're unfamiliar, which most people probably are because this is an indie game, <laughs> in Death's Door, you play as a Grim Reaper. And in this world, there are a lot of Reapers, and they go out and they harvest souls to bring back to their world. But there's a really peculiar rule for this universe. A Reaper can travel anywhere through a series of, like, teleporting doors. But as soon as you set foot in the corporeal realm, time starts moving for you as well. So, for example, when you go to start harvesting a soul you're actually feeling like like you're aging and you are getting closer to your own demise. When you're not on a mission, you're just kind of chilling and you're going to be immortal. <laughs> but like as soon as you set foot to go out on a mission, time starts to move like normally for you. So there's a lot of pressure for Reapers to get in and out as quickly as possible. So you go out on a really big mission in the beginning of the game Everything seems pretty straightforward. You're going to harvest the soul of someone who's been evading death for a long time. Um, you go out, you fight them, you get the, their soul. And before you're able to take it back, you are knocked out. And you wake up not knowing where you are or what happened. And in your, in your process of tracking down the soul, you find that the soul that you need to get back is inside of what is called Death's Door. It's a mysterious door that teleports to some unknown location and basically souls go in and no one knows what happens to them. 
The only way to open Death's Door is to go and find a bunch of other souls to offer to Death's Door. So, you have to go out and harvest the souls of a couple of uh, these three individuals who have been evading death for hundreds of years past when they were supposed to die. And in exchange for those souls, Death's Door will open and you can finish your mission and stop, you know, living as a mortal. Um, But the kicker is... This is also one of the best games I have played in a very, very long time. <laughs> um, mechanically speaking, this is sort of a mix of the old-school, top-down Legend of Zelda games, but with a progression that is sort of akin to from software games like Bloodborne or Dark Souls. So basically, you enter these dungeons which are, for the most part, just one interweaving map. Um, And as you progress, you will find um, ladders or switches or buttons you can press, which will create shortcuts. And the first time through a level might take you like 30 minutes, but because you find all these shortcuts on your way through, you now have like a really quick path through. And that's sort of the, the gist of it. It's this dungeon crawler where you're constantly working your way through mazes and giving yourself ways to shorten them along the way. But it has some of the most genuinely like inspired map design I have seen in any game of this genre. It has very, very cool abilities. It has really interesting puzzles that make you think in not normal video game ways. <laughs> it has really challenging but completely fair combat that sort of keeps everything moving the entire way through it's just it's across the board so good it's like it's everything that i want out of a zelda game prior to legend of zelda breath of the wild (laughs) uh i i said jokingly at one point that this is the best zelda game that i have played this year but I think it feels kind of true <laughs> because it takes a lot from what makes Legend of Zelda so great, adds a lot of its own personality on top, and is delivered in this very approachable and digestible package, but it evolves into a very tough and demanding game that I just I I loved all the way through. Like my only gripe with this game from start to finish is the fact that it, it could have been 10 hours longer and would have been better for it. So, you know, we don't do review scores on TV minis. We just say, like, whether we recommend it or you should avoid it. But I will say with this one, I highly, highly recommend to just about everyone. Oh yeah. <laughs> Are you saying we got two of these things in one episode? That's right, ladies and gentlemen. If you were looking for a TV mini-filled episode, you came to the right place. That's right, we got another one coming for you, and this one is about the Green Knight. Are you telling me we got two TV minis in this episode that I did not play or watch? <laughs> That's right. At least this time, two-thirds of the hosts know what we're talking about. <laughs> So, 
Green Knight was one of those movies that I didn't think necessarily merited its own episode, but I was intrigued by, and we had a good opportunity to go see it during the, the extra week off, and we it saw it. It was a film. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went in and sat in the theater and perceived a movie. <laughs> uh, so what exactly is this film about? Because I know nothing it's a story about King Arthur's nephew, uh, Sir Gawain, on his big adventure to more or less kind of cement his place on the King Arthur's round table and go out and kind of earn his own legacy. Uh, Let me set it up for you, Jackson. So Gawain is royalty, so he's kind of living the life of luxury He's never had any real claim to, like, glory in his life. And he wants to be a knight, and that's, like, their whole deal. So when the Green Knight, who is, like, a tree monster knight guy, rolls into the the King Arthur's court one day uh, and wants to make a deal, Gawain is just like, I am on it. And the deal he makes is that the Green Knight will fight one member of the court and if Gawain manages to strike the Green Knight but not kill the Green Knight that in exactly one year the Green Knight will be able to strike Gawain back in the exact same way it is a crazy deal that starts off this entire thing I'm confused uh, why why does he want to do this well it's a it's a big plot yeah, it's kind of explained in the original poem that this is based on. But basically, uh, Morgan Le Fay, or Morgana as you might know her, you know, the evil witch uh, and King Arthur's sister. Gawain's mother. From, yeah, Gawain's mother. She sends the Green Knight with magic. And the idea in the poem is that she was hoping to kill... King Arthur's wife, who I'm just blanking on her name at the moment, <laughs> uh, hoping to kill her by scaring her to death, and that ideally King Arthur would have been the one to have taken the challenge, or something like that. But it ends up being but Gawain ends up taking the challenge. But basically what happens is they go to start their duel, the Green Knight just... He is... lays down his axe yeah. and like... Puts himself in a position so Gawain can just cut his head off. And Gawain, knowing the terms of the, the, the deal are, he ha if he doesn't kill him, he's going to get hit back. So instead of doing the smart thing where you just give him like a little cut on the shoulder or something, Gawain's like, well, I'll just make sure he dies so he cuts his head off. And then the Green Knight promptly uh, stands back up, picks his head up, puts it back on and says, well, in a year, I'll do the same thing to you. Okay, bye now, and rides off. Hmm. I thought it was pretty obvious why he did what he did. He wanted to get, like, he wanted the people to. Oh tell yeah, to his see story. him as this like right. Yeah. Yeah. So if he had just like hit him in the arm or something, then everyone would talk about him as a coward. Yeah. But he's chasing glory. Right, and now everyone knows this story, and they know that, you know. If Gawain is not a coward, he's going to need to go and face the Green Knight again in a year. And 
the story, most of this movie is really Gawain's adventure to go confront the Green Knight a year later. Um, and I think once it actually gets into the adventure part of it and it sort of sets off as this big quest for glory, I think it's actually a pretty good movie for a while. Like, it goes some interesting directions. He meets some interesting people. Some stuff happens. <laughs> um, but there's sort of this... There's this whole thread through the entire movie, which is just like... Okay, what's about what's about to happen is going to be really weird, but just stick with me. And then it just keeps getting weirder and keeps wanting you just to go with it. It's like the movie keeps saying, stick with me, it's going to make sense soon. And then it never does. Yeah. It's the only movie I've ever gone to where everyone's response... The, the movie ended. The theater was completely silent. Nobody said anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there there were three of us that saw it, and none of the three of us said a single word until we were back in the car and on the way home. <laughs> I don't think any of the other people in the theater... I mean, granted, there weren't that many. Yeah, no. But oh, yeah, I don't was, think anyone was, else in the theater said anything either. It, it was, was total silence. eerily silent. Like, that movie ends... It ends rather unexpectedly, as like a... Not a twist ending, but like a... Like, you're not expecting that to be the final scene either way. And then it just ends, so everybody's just kind of left like, wait, what? Um, but, like, I think it was really well acted. I think it was really well directed. I think most of the writing was actually pretty strong. It had some absolutely beautiful camera work in it. But it was just so, like weird and a lot of the stuff happening was like simultaneously freaky but also like really benign and not that important and like it was just it tried to be a lot of different things that didn't work together <laughs> i just didn't get what it was trying to say most of the time yeah i i still don't really know what the point of the movie was what message was it trying to get across well what was the I've, narrowed theme? It, I've narrowed it down to two but they're polar opposites so i don't know it was either super nihilistic and nothing matters or it was like a live life to the fullest kind of thing and i don't know which one it was don't go chasing waterfalls that's what it was that's exactly what it was now, again, there was a lot about this movie that I think was incredibly well done. And I think, like, I have spent more time thinking about this movie than any other in recent memory. So, like, I guess I would still recommend it. If, it, if it's just a pass-fail grade on this one, I guess it still, it still passes. <laughs> if you want to go see a movie and you don't know which one to see, go see Suicide Squad. But... If you can't find a theater showing Suicide Squad, go see The Green Knight. As someone that has not seen this movie, the way I would describe it is I would probably never go see this on my own. But if one of you guys were like, hey, let's go see this movie, I'd just be like, okay. Hey, that's what happened to me. Yeah. Nice. 
<laughs> you were out of town. We were taking a week off from the podcast. I just sent a message to Jason. I was like, hey, want to go see Green Knight? And we did. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It was a real weird movie, though. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a hard one to get my head wrapped around. If you had to guess, how many times a day do you think Dwayne The Rock Johnson showers? It's probably two less than the actual answer. If I had to guess, he showers daily. You know. Maybe twice a day because he works out a lot. He works out a oh, lot, no, though. No, no. So maybe maybe four. <laughs> now we've gone too far. <laughs> so... There has been some... It turns out the celebrities that you know and love, they're not bathing. They don't take care of themselves properly. They're like children, and they only take baths when people complain about their smell. Except for one, The Rock. (laughs) The celebrities not bathing scandal has been all over the social medias for weeks now. It is not. I think it started... (laughs) It's been a couple days, but I, I think it started with Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis saying that they don't bathe, like, regularly or something? Yeah. So, a lot of people started making some guesses about other celebrities that are probably in similar similar boats. Um, so, Dwayne Rock Johnson had some of these leveled against him, where some people were just like, that looks like a man who doesn't shower. And Dwayne Johnson's response was not just, no, I do shower. It's, I hella shower. <laughs> This dude showers three times every day. (laughs) Once cold. Second, warm. Third, hot. Is this real or are you just... I'm not making this up. This is a tweet from The Rock himself. Uh, Wow. That man's a hero. He's got to be careful, though, taking that many showers. Because erosion will get him. (laughs) I hate this. Well, guys. Idris Elba. Idris Elba, he's been in the news a lot lately. And it turns out, most recently, it's for stealing my dream job. (laughs) Now, when you think of Idris Elba, you probably think, that is a man who is tough as nails. Someone that'll knock him down whether they're solid or frail. You know, he he doesn't chuckle, alright? God, this is agony. (laughs) (laughs) Idris Elba is going to play, going to be playing Knuckles in Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> he confirmed this week through a very vague tweet uh, with just a picture of Knuckles, Knuckles, and uh, a picture of Knuckles where he stated he would rather flex his muscles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, it really sort of turned the internet on its head, which I think is fair because for a lot of us, me included. Our exposure to Idris Elba really started with The Wire, and he sort of played a lot of high-esteem roles ever since. And even his most recent portrayal of of Bloodsport and Suicide Squad was still sort of an elevated thing, whereas now we're going to be hearing him voice a video game character in a video game movie, and like it just... 
I don't get me wrong. Sonic the Hedgehog is much better than I expected it to be. But with the track record video game movies have, and with the links that voice actors have to go to for video game movies, it just, it still feels weird. <laughs> I do have to say, though, based on his performance in Suicide Squad, I would 100% believe that he could play a character that's, say, rougher than the rest of them, the best of them, tougher, tougher than leather, you know? <sighs> God. Ugh. <laughs> <sighs> uh. That being said, I criticize, but I'm very much looking forward to Sonic the Hedgehog 2. I I do I am bummed that they went and changed Sonic's appearance because I really want to see what ugly knuckles would look like. <laughs> well, I know one thing about him. He's independent since his first breath. First test, feel the right, then the worst left. He's got no such thing as weak spots. Don't approve of him, but gotta trust him. This alliance has a per oh wait, no, these lines don't work really. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that in the so- in both Sonic Adventure games, Knuckles has multiple raps is amazing to me. It's the most 90s thing about that series somehow. I don't want to talk about Marvel. I want to talk about Batman. Ba- Batman. Because the Penguin is turning 80 years old. And you know what that means. They, they gotta get Danny DeVito to write a Batman comic. Because he, he played the Penguin once, remember? I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. Like, the execs were all sitting at, at DC headquarters, which I guess is still a thing. And they were all like, it's the 80th anniversary of the Penguin, so we all know what that means. And they all looked at each other and in unison said... Danny DeVito, and they laughed. <laughs> Danny DeVito is a really cool guy, honestly. There's a famous quote where someone asked him if his character in It's Always Sunny was like a ridiculous version of himself, and his response was just, no, it's a turn, it's a toned-down version of myself. But, like, if I don't know if you guys have seen Batman Returns recently, but Danny DeVito is one of the better parts of that movie. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely fair. I actually have never watched Batman Returns. Yeah, that's not surprising. <laughs> it's like 15 years older than you. <laughs> As everyone knows, there has been some hot water at Marvel regarding their actor contracts as of late. Kicked off largely by the lawsuit brought on by Scarlett Johansson after she was shorted on a lot of money post uh, Black Widow. So this has sort of sparked some questions about whether or not future Marvel releases will have theatrical releases alongside Disney Plus or basically it just it's left people with a lot of questions about what to expect. And this week Disney officially confirmed that Shang-Chi is going to be exclusively in theaters at the time of release. Which of course, is a concern for a lot of people. We're in the midst of a pandemic. A lot of people don't live in the middle of nowhere like we do. So going not only the are theaters. we in the middle of a pandemic, we're in the middle of a resurgence of the pandemic. Yeah. Delta variant is coming on strong. Yeah, it's just, it's a wild time. The fact that this movie isn't being delayed seems kind of strange to me. The fact that they are releasing exclusively in theater sounds absolutely stupid to me um 
and it's just across the board, Disney's dropping the ball on this one because they know they would lose money if they didn't do it this way. And they've probably already promised some money to some people that they don't want to have to give up Disney Plus shares or whatever. So it's it's a mess across the board. And because of all this, it's now also projecting that Shang-Chi will have the lowest box office opening since The Incredible Hulk. Large part due to the fact that it's only opening in theaters in the middle of a <laughs> pandemic. It's also an original character. Not not an original character, but First you know, a character that character. we haven't seen before. Yeah. 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 It wasn't going to make... It was. It wasn't going to make Captain America or Iron Man money, regardless. And then it's in the middle of a time when people aren't going to go to a lot of movies, and then they're getting rid of this option that people have had for the last year and a half for all movies. It's just. It's so bad across the board. I don't know why they're doing this. Well, I know why. It's just. It sucks. <laughs> Maybe they think the movie's going to be really bad, and they're just doing us a favor. That's how I've always interpreted the fact that Tenet didn't go into uh, streaming services. I'm kind of feeling that. Like, I'm wondering if maybe test audiences aren't loving this movie as much as some previous ones, and it's a little too late to fix some of the more overarching problems. I I also think that to some degree racism is going to be part of it because I just they're just they're going to be fans that won't watch a movie that stars an Asian character. I mean, that's just, that's all there is to it. It's just, across the board, Disney is really shooting themselves in the foot with this one just for a little bit better short-term gain, and I I don't think it's going to bode well for them. Again, they're one of the largest corporations in the world, so they're going to be fine. There are no consequences for them, but it still sucks. There's really no winners anytime Disney's involved. Yeah. Well, Disney wins, but that's but it means everyone else loses. <laughs> uh, it'll be interesting uh, to see what happens with the next MCU movie, or to see if they'll change their mind about this. I'm thinking it's almost a given at this point that unless things get a lot better a lot faster than I'm expecting, Spider-Man's not coming this year. Yeah, it's supposed to be December of this year. I'm... I'm fully suspecting that in the next two or three months, uh, especially contingent on how Shang-Chi does, I think I think that Spider-Man's coming sometime like February or March of next year. That's a good bet. I'm excited for Spider-Man. Me too. Big fan. <laughs> when he did that flip, I was like, dang, that was cool. <laughs> Almost reminds me of another famous MCU character. Hold on. It's just... Even more Marvel news? That's right, baby. We got more Moon Knight news. And by more Moon Knight news, I mean it's really trickling out, isn't it? <laughs> it exists. I, I don't even know time. if they're even going to make a, a Moon Knight show at this point. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's totally up in the air. <laughs> but recently, it was revealed that Ethan Hawke is going to be in it. You know Ethan Hawke. Famous actor Ethan Hawke. He's previously said he wasn't going to do comic book movies. But that was until Oscar Isaac said, Hey, would you like to be in this this uh, this superhero show? And Ethan Hawke said, Yeah. And that's show business, baby. 
I, I don't have a ton to say about this. It's just, it's really weird, like, based on Ethan Hawke's, his, basically just his credentials across the board. I mean, he's normally in very artistic, very high art films, a lot of history stuff. Um, it's just, I don't know, just seems like a weird move for him. And I, I get, based on his, like, his past, why he would say he wasn't going to do superhero movies, because it, it makes sense. <laughs> Now, you think that's all the Marvel news? We still got one more thing. Uh, Venom got delayed by like three weeks. Um, yeah, that. Oh, I forgot that was a Marvel thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Venom 2 been delayed three weeks. Doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, honestly, the only reason I was even thinking so much about this is because it messes up our schedule. <laughs> but hey, it works for me because I kept thinking this movie came out in October, and now it does, which means I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Dang. Yep. Jackson's been three weeks ahead of us the whole time. <laughs> Streets ahead, if you will. <laughs> honestly, Venom is... It's. I'm not excited for Venom 2. Me either. I'm calling my shot now. It's going to be, and I quote, eh. It's going to be fine. Or bad. I would love to go see this movie and it turns out to be really good, but it's going to be fine at best, is what I'm expecting. Just like the first one. <laughs> Maybe it'll give us another just absolute banger of a theme song. <laughs> when Eminem said Venom, 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 I felt that. Venom. I can't wait for him to say Venom 2, Venom 2, Venom 2, Venom 2, and Venom 2. <laughs> no, it's going to be, it's just going to be carnage. No, 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 it's the same song, but every time he says it, he says Venom, let there be carnage incredibly fast. <laughs> It has to fit in the same amount of time he says Venom. Look, this is this is the... I honestly can't remember if it's the Rap King or Rap God. But he can do it. He calls himself the Rap God. So, there's that. Someone should tell him that there's other rappers. Someone should tell him about gods. Oh, snap. Uh, I feel like Eminem... We're gonna... This is about to be a hot take. And the first time we've really talked about music on the podcast... Uh, I feel like Eminem could have called himself the rap god in like 2006, and nobody would have argued. <laughs> does he? Yeah. Does he still call himself that? I mean, the song "Rap God's not that old. Like, I want to think eight or ten years old at the most. <laughs> Eminem's a weird dude. I was really into him in like middle school because, like, you know, I was an edgy white kid. But like, <laughs> I don't know. I just. Not not an artist I've cared to really give any time to in the last decade. <laughs> well, folks, we're doing things a little bit differently at the end of this episode. So instead of just giving you the recap where we go on and on about how we're still watching the same shows and playing the same games, we're going to do something different. Something I like to call pulling the plug. Jackson, what's what's something you've been into this week? Blitgate, which is also Halo, but also Portal. <laughs> um, it's I I think it's probably like one of my favorite shooters I've played in a while. 
it's definitely got some issues and some things that I think would be great additions. Um, like, my, my biggest problem right now is just the fact that the thing you're progressing towards is cosmetics, and I don't care about a single one of them. They're bad cosmetics. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not yeah. like it's one thing if if all the unlockables are cosmetics, that's fine. I really enjoyed this game. All the unlockables suck. Yeah, they they're all garbage, and I don't care about a single one of them. But the gameplay is pretty fun. I really enjoy playing it. Um, I do know since there's nothing for me to progress to, I will probably not be playing this game much more after a week from now. But other than that, it's free, so check it out if you like uh, shooters. If you don't like shooters, don't check it out. It's in beta, and I, yeah. I definitely want to know more about what the 1.0 is going to look like, because that promises new maps and a new battle pass, which could help with some of like the the rewards in the game. Yeah. And like, yeah, it doesn't look the best, but it actually is just it it's a lot of fun. Like it it feels good to play. It's got some cool maps. It has a cool style to it. You can do some really interesting stuff with the portals. Like I'm liking it way more than I thought I would. Now that you mentioned the fact that it's in beta, it reminded me that I can't really play this game for much more than a week because I think it ends on like I don't know. The, I think the 21st of August, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, that's all I've got this week. Uh, Jason, what you got? Hello, it's me. And I'm here to talk about my favorite video game, Fallout New Vegas. That's right. I downloaded a whole bunch of mods, and I'm playing New Vegas again. <laughs> and it's still just as good as it always is. <laughs> Are you playing with any like content or story mods, or just like quality of life stuff? It's mostly quality of life stuff. Mm. Um, I don't even think I really have any texture mods in there. It's just... Like, I have some mods that, like, improve lighting, and then some stuff that... Honestly, most of the mods I have make the game harder. Because uh, I got, like, the J.E. Sawyer mod, which is... It's a mod that the the director of the game, Joss Sawyer, made. And it's basically just to make the game harder and, like, more interesting to play. I've been having a good time playing that. I think the only mod I got that really added too much that wasn't, like just cut content was I, I got like a a van or something that you can use as basically like player housing but also a fast travel machine hmm. <laughs> so you don't I, I didn't want to rely on fast traveling quite so much and the van you can only drive it to places you've already been so you know I've started Fallout New Vegas many times I think the farthest I've ever got is like 10 hours in <laughs> Fallout New Vegas is really good once you get to Vegas. Um, I didn't. Uh, I think I don't think you can ever start really appreciating it till you get to Vegas. I never made it to or Vegas, or at least when you get to Freeside. Yeah, see, that's your problem. The first time you play it, I think that you're kind of looking forward to the stuff in Vegas, and it makes everything before Vegas kind of feel like a drag. Uh, but I, I think once you actually get there, and the game really, the game, as weird as it sounds, it really opens up once you get to <laughs> Vegas. Um, it, it feel you feel more prepared to go to other areas, stuff like that, and also you start getting quests that tell you to like go way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, I just love this game a whole lot. I I come back to it constantly. It's one of the few games where it really feels like your choices matter, and I wish that there was a little bit more 
after the end of the game, after the Battle of Hoover Dam, so you could really see how your changes affected the world. But I understand why there's not. Jordan, what you, what, how about you? Close personal friend and fan of the show, Jack Antonoff, his band Bleachers just put out a new album called Take the Sadness Out of Saturday Night, and it is what we in the business call very, very good. <laughs> Uh, it is, it's sort of just, I mean, it's classic bleachers. Like everything about it is true to their sound, but with some sort of evolved subject matter and some new ideas that they haven't gotten into in past albums, like thematically. Um, yeah, it's just really, really good. It's, it's weird because it's, it's a super short album, which normally I'm a little bit like, I'm a little cold on, but like. It's, it just feels good. Like, it, it wraps up really well. The songs flow together. It has a really good progression in it. I just think, like, it's a solid album. I'm going to double-check, actually. Yeah, the whole album is only 33 minutes long, <laughs> but it's got some absolute bangers in it. I, I highly recommend uh, starting with the songs uh, How Dare You Want More and Stop Making This Hurt. It sounds a lot more depressing than it is, <laughs> but... uh <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's such a good album. It's musically, I think, the best they've been. They have some incredibly talented musicians on there. It has some excellent solos. Uh, the song, stop, or so, sorry, the song, How Dare You Want More, has this just absolutely bonkers uh, guitar and alto saxophone duet that is just wild. Like, some of the best I've heard from them. It's just very, very good album. Highly recommend it. This album is classic Bleachers, but with Bruce Springsteen. Ah, I can't speak today. Uh, Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, they got a song in there with Bruce Springsteen. Y- you know. <laughs> they got a song in there with Lana Del Rey as well. That's This is the only two other artists featured on the album. Bruce Springsteen and Lana <laughs> Del Rey. It's only 33 minutes long. I would probably recommend just finding a good time to sit down and listen to the whole album. The way it was meant to be heard. It's perfect for me because my drive to work is like 35 minutes. (laughs) So like, it slots in there nicely. (laughs) Well, folks, I think that just about does it for another episode of the Totally Biased Media Podcast. We'd love for you to reach out to us, and we got a whole slew of ways for you to do that. You can find us on Twitter at TBMcast, on Instagram at Totally Biased Media. You can find our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Totally Biased Media. Uh, you can send us an email with your reviews or suggestions or comments to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. If you use Apple Podcasts for your as your podcast app of choice, we'd love for you to to drop us a review let us know how we're doing so like reach out we are laying this all at your feet there are so many options please talk to us it's so quiet we're so lonely (laughs) whenever you're gone it's like we're in a liminal state but for the totally biased media podcast i'm jordan walkup i'm jason simmons and i'm jackson walkup and you just felt the bias thank you everybody Goodbye.